if you're born to, in the UK to two foreign-born parents and you don't have citizenship, you can be deported to a country you've never been to in your life. I think part of the problem is that the deportation policy is set so widely that it captures lots of people who shouldn't be anywhere near one of these flights, including people who've grown up here from very early childhood. The majority of those who had their tickets cancelled had valid human rights claims or other claims as to why they should not be put on that flight. This week, a controversial deportation flight took off for Jamaica. Legal challenges meant that only a tenth of the 90 people due to be deported were actually on the plane. The planned deportation included people whose lawyers said they had a right to stay in the UK under the Windrush rules or who had arrived in the UK as children. So the Home Office in the UK, for example, is in the middle of passing a new bill and it's called the Nationality and Borders Bill and there's lots of really controversial and problematic issues within this bill. However important we say immigration is as a policy issue, we don't have immigration policy in this country. Our only policy in this country overriding all other concerns is to blame immigrants for everything and then be as hostile as possible. The immigration system is in need of desperate reform, but not of the kind being proposed in this speech. Critics say that our immigration system is unnecessarily cruel. But what is its origin story? How has it changed over time? And what does it have to do with Britain's colonial history? What we have is an immigration system now where black British people have been deported by this government, right? And you need to go back and look at the history of immigration acts that are bound up with empire. So people who came to this country in the 50s and 60s are now called immigrants from India, Pakistan, Jamaica. They didn't come as immigrants. They came as British citizens or subjects. And there were successive pieces of legislation that were about making it more difficult for people of colour to come to this country because of those colonial logics that treated those people as if they were Something. lower, right? Lower than British, white British people. We Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. In this final episode of the series, we're asking, where did our immigration system come from? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by Ian Sanjay Patel, LSE Fellow in Human Rights and author of We're Here Because You Were There, Immigration and the End of Empire. Hi, Ian. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for being with us. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So let's kick off with the big picture. So in your book, you argue that the history of immigration to Britain isn't just a story which takes place in Britain itself. So what do you mean by that? Well, I think when we hear the word immigration, we inevitably think of a domestic story and a national story. But in the case of Britain, it's much more helpful for understanding the true origin story of migration to Britain in the last hundred years to think about it as an international, transnational and imperial story. So even though it's not particularly well known, the actual origins of Britain's modern immigration system are inevitably to do with the British imperial world and the forms of migration that took place within it going back at least uh, 200 years. So this is quite a big topic, but just to begin, we can acknowledge that modern immigration laws don't begin in the UK. Modern immigration laws, as we know them, actually begin in the white settler colonies in today's Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. 
So these immigration laws started to appear from the 1850s onwards, and they were created by Anglo-Saxon white settlers in these colonies in today's Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And they were targeting migrants who were Japanese, Chinese, and Indian. And the the term that was used was a a catch-all term called Asiatics. So there were immigration laws banning so-called Asiatics from entering these colonies. So when Britain eventually passed their own immigration laws, which began in 1905, the Aliens Act, and then there were more important ones for our purposes in the 1960s and early 1970s. Believe it or not, British officials were well aware that they were following in the footsteps of immigration laws that had first taken place in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And can I just ask a quick question about that? So those original laws to in terms of restricting the uh, Asiatics and the and the aliens in in, uh, in inverted commas house quotes I don't know what you call it I'm doing that thing with my hands. <laughs> what I know what was you mean. The, uh, yeah, you know what I mean. What was the motivation behind that at the time? Why were those laws put in place? Well, uh, the first laws came from the colonies in today's Australia. So, for example. One of the very first laws appeared in the colony of Victoria in today's southern Australia. And this was the context for this was a gold rush. So there were gold fields and there were migrants who were attracted to the promise of the gold in that particular colony. And there were a lot of Chinese migrants. Uh, So the new fledgling colony, which was at the very beginning of developing its own sense of uh, nationhood, which would eventually lead the Australian colonies to federate. And obviously, Australia would go on to become its own independent sovereign state. In the 1850s, there were various meetings held, and it was decided that the colony needed to be kept broadly Anglo-Saxon. And the idea was to keep out Chinese in the first instance and any other migrants. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Did you want to go on to another point there? Yeah. Um, so when we think about migration in the British imperial world, the first set of migration at stake is actually the white emigration of Anglo-Saxons across the world to the new colonies in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. So Once we begin to think about migration in its settler colonial context, we can begin to think more broadly about what kinds of migration were actually occurring in the British imperial world. And this wasn't simply a case of white Anglo-Saxons leaving Britain. It was also intra-imperial migrations. Some of these were obviously forced, like, for example, slavery. There was also a huge amount of migration that took place under the system of indentured labour, which occurred after the abolition of slavery. So indentured labourers were largely taken from colonial India. They were referred to as coolies, and they were moved from one part of the empire to another. So some of those indentured labourers were taken to the so-called sugar colonies of Mauritius and Trinidad. Other indentured labourers from India were taken to East Africa 
to construct the Imperial Railway from Mombasa to Lake Victoria. That's actually one of the primary reasons that the British decided to create a protectorate in East Africa was the promise of this railway, which was built by indentured labour. So you can imagine there's all sorts of migrations occurring in the British imperial world. Anglo-Saxons moving to every corner of the world, indentured labourers moving mostly from India to places like Natal, Fiji, Mauritius, East Africa and Trinidad. And actually, once you begin to think about migration in this way, you realize that it's part of a much bigger series of movements of peoples, not simply a movement in the way that we tend to think of post-war migration, which is simply a movement of people from colonies and former colonies to the UK. Thanks, Ian. So off the back of what you were just saying, the title of your book is obviously We're Here Because You Were There. So it would be great if you could talk to us about what immigration to Britain has to do with Britain's history of colonizing other countries beyond what you were just mentioning and how that kind of exists in, the, I guess, the public narrative or the public consciousness today. Well, I think in the case of the migrations that happened in the immediate post-war decades, the very term immigration is extremely misleading because the migrants in question were within British nationality. And very often they were full-blown British citizens who were moving from one part of the empire to another. And in the case of Commonwealth citizens, they were moving from one part of the imperial Commonwealth to another. So the very notion of immigration and immigrant suggests a group of people that were outside British nationality. And I think the fact that the primary immigration laws of the 1960s, the fact that they used the term immigration rather than, say, an act with respect to British citizens or Commonwealth citizens is revealing. And I think it was designed to fudge the citizenship rights of the people in question and distract attention from the fact that these people's legal right to move to the UK was actually flowing from British law itself. And the source of that British law was a very generous scheme of imperial citizenship, generous at the level of citizenship rights. So it was a bit like in the 1960s when these laws were created, these immigration laws were actually undercutting British nationality law itself. Former British nationality law that was completely imperial. So in that sense, I think the term immigration is misleading for those sets of migrations in the immediate post-war period. And I think when we talk about immigration today, is a sort of slightly different thing in the sense they're not British nationals. Okay, that all makes sense. So I want to dig a little bit more into the history of our immigration system. You argue that in the book that post-war migration is really central to 20th century British history. So why is that? Can you unpack that for us? Well, this history of post-war migration is also the history of the post-war Commonwealth in the sense that the very ability of those migrants to travel to the UK was part of legislation belonging to the post-war Commonwealth. And exactly what the Commonwealth was is another way of talking about what Britain was after 1945. 
Yeah. And I guess, I guess that kind of links to what we've been talking about, about that kind of sense of the national identity being forged over decades in relation to, and perhaps preservation of this kind of sense of a British nationhood and a British nationality that was kind of distinct from these people called immigrants or aliens or or whatever. Okay. So you've also written that the idea that the Windrush generation and other Commonwealth citizens were invited to come to Britain so they could help to rebuild it after the Second World War is actually kind of a half-truth in the book. So can you shed a bit of light on that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the key piece of legislation at stake here is the 1948 Nationality Act. So the 1948 British Nationality Act is the piece of legislation that actually creates new categories of citizenship in the post-war era. So it creates citizens of the UK and colonies, and it creates Commonwealth citizens who are citizens of independent Commonwealth states. Now, what's crucial here is that this citizenship is not tied to the territory of the British Isles itself. It's actually a much broader citizenship, which is tied to wider territories so Crown Colonies, as well as the British Isles, as well as the, the wider Commonwealth, including independent Commonwealth states like India and Australia, say. So this is actually a, a remarkable thing in the sense that a person born in, say, Kenya colony has an identical citizenship to somebody born in London. So after 1948, people who are connected to Crown colonies or independent Commonwealth states had an unrestricted right of entry to the UK. When the law was passed, there was very little expectation that it would actually lead to the kind of mass migration that did occur. This was a time when migration was expensive, and British lawmakers were focused on other things. They were focused on giving the post-war Commonwealth and imperial identity. So if you think about the, the context of this time, we have the end of the Second World War in 1945, then India's independence as a dominion of Britain in 1947. And obviously, places like Australia, Canada, and New Zealand have just signed the UN Charter as independent states rather than as part of a Commonwealth bloc. And the legislation in 1948, the British Nationality Act of that year, was designed to give a kind of imperial coherence to Britain's post-war identity. So by sort of declaring Britain to be non-national and declaring Britain to have an imperial scheme of citizenship was designed to preserve a kind of imperial unity that many would have thought would have been lost. So this was the sort of primary motivation for passing the act. It was nothing to do with an expectation that many thousands of people from places like India and Jamaica would actually start to use and exercise their legal right of entry and migrate to the imperial heartland, which is, of course, what happens during the 1950s. So it was kind of a largely symbolic act that they didn't actually think would play out. And then when it did, as you say, in the 50s, they sharply did a U-turn and and ended it in the 60s. So how did that 
go down? And was that a result then of being like, we didn't think this was actually going to happen? JK, closing the borders. Yes. I mean, it was a remarkable piece of legislation passed by Clement Attlee's government. And in hindsight, sort of an explosive piece of legislation in terms of the citizenship rights that it granted to millions of people, many of whom were obviously not white around the world. And, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the act, it was seen to be, you know, a very positive thing for the British Empire still, as it was known at that time. But remember that the empire is is renamed the Commonwealth around this time. So, for example, the New York Times responded to the 1948 British Nationality Act by saying that the British Empire had been given a new Nationality Act. But then almost immediately, and this is obviously, we remember this in the form of the Windrush arrivals, the British cabinet started to worry about what it called coloured immigration. And in the 1950s, there are at least uh, nine separate cabinet meetings about the potential need to introduce immigration legislation. And then finally, in 1962, the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act ended the unrestricted rights of entry of Commonwealth citizens into the country. And from 1962 on, this kind of fully-fledged effort in imperial citizenship, including unrestricted entry to the UK, is over. And you begin to see the birth of Britain's modern immigration regime. Yeah, and so you obviously argue off the back of that, that British citizenship was then redrawn along racial lines from then onwards. So how how did that work? And I guess, I mean, I think it's quite obvious to any listener of the pod how that has continued to thread through to today. But what did that look like in the 60s? Well, you know, what happens next is very odd in the sense that in the 1960s, this is the sort of primary phase of decolonization in the British Empire. And actually, you know, by 1965, direct British imperial rule is all but over, as many colonies, particularly in Africa, finally achieve independence. But at the level of citizenship, British citizenship remains imperial throughout the 1960s and 1970s. And what happens instead is rather than dismantling the original 1948 British Nationality Act, which had given citizenship rights to people connected to colonies and independent Commonwealth states, instead of dismantling that legislation, the British pass immigration laws, which actually block certain people in the colonies and the Commonwealth from entering Britain, but not others. And what this meant in practice was a series of laws which are designed to stop non-white migrants from coming to the UK, but actually allowing people whose ancestry connects them to the British Isles, so in the vocabulary of the time, white kith and kin abroad, to return, if you like, to the UK. So if you actually look at the sort of letter of the law, race is not mentioned, the unit these laws operate on is at the level of territory. But in practice, this is a division of British citizenship and British nationality along racial lines. And this is the most obvious in the 1968 
Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which is actually a very a sort of uniquely misnamed piece of legislation. It actually was directly designed to stop citizens of the UK and colonies, so what we today would call British citizens, who were Indian origin, but resident in Kenya from migrating to Britain, which they had an unrestricted right to do. They were exempt from the 1962 Act, and the British thought that many thousands of these Indian origin people resident in Kenya would migrate to the UK, and it passed an act deliberately designed to block them. And the way that it did this is that it tied the right of entry to ancestral connection to the UK. So if you didn't have an ancestor who was born in or otherwise connected to the territories of the British Isles, you would not be able to enter, even if you were a British citizen. And this was, even at the time, recognised to be racist or racialist, as the term went then. And in 1973, the European Court of Human Rights found that legislation to be racially discriminatory. Yeah, I mean, it's largely very similar to the kind of tactics that are used today, right, in terms of kind of excluding and rejecting whole swathes of people who are racialized in different ways, for example, people from the global south, and building an immigration system that, of course, doesn't say you can't come here if you look like this, but it just so happens that most of the people who look like that can't come here. (laughs) You know, what was so unusual about that piece of legislation is that it was directly attacking the very definition of what a nationality is. You know, the sort of irreducible minimum of a nationality is the ability to live and work in your own country. And seemingly Britain was violating that core principle. And the Attorney General and other British officials worried about the extent to which they might be violating international law by passing such an act. So I think what's particularly unusual about the immigration laws of the 1960s and 1970s, as opposed to other examples of immigration laws, is that these were targeting people within British nationality. I think intuitively, when we think of immigration laws, we think about laws that are targeting people who are non-citizens or aliens, as the term goes. Yeah. I mean, so in your book, then, when you say that we've got a conception that Britain's imperial status kind of ended in the 1960s, but that wasn't actually the case. Is that what you're talking about, then? Is that an example of how it's kind of continued to proliferate? Yeah, I mean, this question of the the end of the British Empire is one that I think is incredibly poorly understood or confused in popular discourse. And even in the historiography, It's always been very hard to locate an end of empire moment per se. And the question of when the British Empire actually ends is really just a case of how you approach it. I mean, there are are some arguments, some good arguments to say that once Britain loses the unique, sui generis imperial realm of India, that the empire, the capital E, is essentially over. On that reading, you would place the end of empire in 1947. Another common way of identifying the end of empire would be to locate the end of direct imperial rule, so the end of crown colonies. And 
with a few exceptions, direct British imperial rule is all but over by the mid-60s. But at the level of citizenship, as I said earlier, citizenship remains imperial, which is quite a remarkable thing, that the original Nationality Act in 1948, which was set up when Britain still conceived of itself very much as an empire, was not dismantled in the 1960s at the same time as crown colonies ended. And there are a lot of reasons for this. One was the assumption that imperial citizens, so people that gained British citizenship by their birth in a crown colony, would lose that citizenship upon the independence of post-colonial states. Now, even though, for example, Kenya gains independence in 1963, for a a particular set of reasons the Indian origin people in Kenya do not gain Kenyan citizenship and they retain British citizenship. So there you have this strange phenomenon of Indian origin people resident in Kenya, in post-colonial Kenya, who've never been to Britain and who nevertheless hold exactly the same form of British citizenship as Harold Wilson the prime minister at the time. The British never conceived that such a thing would actually take place. And when it, when it did, it left them in a difficult situation because they weren't willing to accept any more coloured immigrants, as the term went at the time. They were also reluctant to dismantle the 1948 Act because they knew that any legislation which finally took away those citizenship rights that had been given out would lead to a beat-the-ban rush. So after the the beat-the-ban rush of migration that occurred just before the 62 Commonwealth Immigrants Act came into force, they were worried that any further legislation would cause a similar rush of migration. But another reason which I think is particularly interesting is that it took a long time for the British to let go of the imperial promise of the Commonwealth itself. And this scheme of imperial citizenship, which gave out citizenship rights to people connected to the colonies and the Commonwealth, was a way of declaring to itself and to the world that the post-war Commonwealth was actually an imperial enterprise. So to dismantle the 48 Act would also be to dismantle one of the constitutional pillars of the Commonwealth and finally admit that the Commonwealth was not the imperial vehicle that it was originally designed to be. So you have this bizarre outcome, which is that British citizenship remains imperial all the way until 1981, when the 1981 British Nationality Act finally creates something called British citizenship, the current legal term, which is defined primarily around the territories of the British Isles. And it's the first time that British citizenship looks like a territorial citizenship like other nation states. So if we didn't, if we've had this continuity, really, there's never been a clean break from imperialism. It's kind of just been a continuation. And that's up to 81, I think you said. 81, yeah. Yeah. So where are we now? 
Well, coming back to what I was saying earlier, I don't think there's ever been a end of empire moment in this country. There have been things that have, have sort of approached an end of empire moment. So, you know, India's independence, for example, or sometimes in the historical literature, you'll read about 1968 as a potential end of empire moment when there was military retrenchment east of Suez and Britain finally committed to liquidate the naval base in Singapore. But actually, because of the Commonwealth, which obviously Britain still is a Commonwealth, it still sees itself as a Commonwealth, it's very hard to locate Britain as a nation state rather than a Commonwealth-centric policy. And I think that's crucial. British officials' method for dealing with the end of empire was not to end the empire per se, it was to transition the empire to the Commonwealth. And this was actually a very carefully theorized act of imperial reasoning, which was to do with a kind of constitutional idea that Britain's empire was about tutoring other peoples in its own rule of law and political institutions, the Westminster model, for example, and actually bringing those peoples up to a stage of equality under the auspices of the Commonwealth. Now, the Commonwealth was never ended, and it may be very hard for us today to take seriously the Commonwealth as a vehicle for British imperialism. But in the 1950s and 60s, it very much was a serious imperial policy initiative. And the fact that we still have it means that at some level, Britain remains notionally non-national as a policy. And of course, you know, the Queen is attached to various Commonwealth realms. The structure of the Privy Council remains imperial in certain respects. And some of the debates around Brexit were, I noticed, about plugging back into a kind of Commonwealth world where ostensibly Britain can resume its Commonwealth connections with states like India. Now, India may not take the notion of the Commonwealth very seriously. And in fact, a lot of the post-colonial states that used to be former colonies took the Commonwealth as a political association less seriously than British officials did, particularly within the Commonwealth Office. So in this sense, the question of what kind of polity Britain is has remained unclear. And I think that it's only recently that we're beginning to have something of a reckoning with what empire and the end of empire has meant. I think one important example was the so-called Mau Mau case in 2010 to 2012, whose formal name was Matua and others versus the FCO. And this was a case brought by five elderly Kenyans who brought a case in the, the high court claiming mistreatment and torture during the so-called Mau Mau emergency in the 1950s. And this, I think, led to a sort of greater public awareness about what actually took place at the end of empire. And then more recently, the Windrush scandal has, has also helped bring our attention to what has actually taken place for those of us who are connected to British colonies. 
So let's move back into the present day then, following on from that, to talk about how this story is playing out. The most obvious example, as you touched on there, is the Windrush scandal. I think that'll be the one that folks are most familiar with. So can you give us a quick overview of how what we've been talking about led to that scandal? Yes. Well, I think the Windrush scandal has come to be associated, understandably, with Theresa May's tenure as, as Home Secretary and also the Immigration Acts in 2014-2016. But actually, the sort of foundation for the Windrush scandal was laid by the 1971 Immigration Act. Now, this act, which was created by the new Conservative government, Edward Heath's government, was designed to regularise British immigration policies. And it was well known for being particularly punitive. And one thing in particular that it did is that it put the administrative burden of proof on individuals rather than the state to prove that they had indefinite leave to remain after a particular date. And this particular administrative burden led to to what we saw in the Windrush scandal, people being unable to prove their status. And I think that the whole, if you think about what was actually taking place in the Windrush scandal, these were the children of either citizens of the UK and colonies or Commonwealth citizens, so those who were citizens of, say, Jamaica, not being able to exercise their citizenship rights in the UK, even those those rights had been created under British law. So the fact that this was able to happen takes us back to the episodes in the 1960s, where we essentially had Windrush scandals happening before the fact. So there were various episodes in the 1960s, which were very similar to this most recent scandal. You know, so for example, if I take you back to what happened in 1968, you had Indian origin people resident in Kenya who held citizenship of the UK and colonies, the primary form of British nationality, and they weren't able to have a right of entry into their own country, legally speaking. So in that sense, the scandal had happened before. And the legal architecture of that scandal, which is a mix of nationality law and immigration law, was actually laid beginning in 1948 and with an important juncture in 1971. And it only sort of culminates in the last 10 years or so. And I think that what the Windrush scandal does is it sort of brought our attention to this history that I write about in the book. And I couldn't help but notice when I read the Windrush Lessons Learned review is that 1971 is mentioned many times. I think it's well over a dozen times the 1971 Act is mentioned. And the recommendations of that review are very interesting at least two of the recommendations of the Windrush Lessons Learned Review say that staff in the Home Office need to be more aware of Britain's international history and the history of immigration policy in the post-war period. And it's not very often that policy reviews 
direct us to history so explicitly. And I think we should pay attention to the fact that this one does. All right. So we're going to have to wrap up in a second. But before we do, uh, I wanted to to talk about the British education system and in particular our colonial history and the extent to which it is or isn't present in that system. So a lot of what you've talked about today and what you wrote about in the book, which I would really recommend to listeners, is really new to me and I think new to a lot of folks. And there has been a lot of conversation, as I'm sure you know, over the last year about the absence of Britain's colonial history um, in our schools and the importance of getting it on the curriculum. So I guess it would just be good to close by hearing your thoughts on why it is important for that to be included and whether we can ever really hope to make progress on immigration issues today without grappling with our imperial history. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important question, you know, this question of education on these topics, particularly national education in schools, about how we reckon with this history. And I think like a, like a lot of people affected by these issues or who have read about these issues or have worked on these issues or researched them, that you can't help but feel that there's a huge amount of room for improvement. I mean, I do think that there are some very positive signs of change in the last few years, and we'll have to see how those bear out. But really, there is so much of this history that is lost, even at the most basic level. So, for example, even learning you know, the history of British citizens and the fact that British citizenship was imperial all the way until 1981 is one place to start if you're talking about post-war migration. But there really is so many different areas to discuss, not to mention the end of empire. You know, what actually did happen during the age of decolonization, we're learning, we're learning more about some of the human rights violations that took place during counterinsurgencies in the 1950s. But there's so much that we don't know, even as historians, that we don't know. We learned with the, the Mau Mau case that I, I mentioned earlier that there were certain archives that were not made, deliberately not made public by the FCO. And one can't help but think that there is so much that took place during those decades that historians don't know, let alone the general public. So this sort of reckoning, Britain's reckoning with its own past, is going to need to be made as substantive as possible. And I think it's quite easy to say that you know the reckoning has already taken place, but I think it's actually a reckoning of this kind is actually a very deep process. And it, it's not simply about the philosophy of history and what it means to come to terms with history. It's also a social process. It's also a political process. And I would say that it's only just begun. Historically, certainly in the last few decades, Britain has been not very good at coming to terms with this history. So we'll have to see what happens in the next, you know, in the, in the short to medium term. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a really holistic national conversation that has to be had, really, isn't it? It's not just as simple as getting certain things on the curriculum. It's also about kind of grappling with what happens when those kids go home and talk to their parents and are faced with the kind of nostalgia for empire and superiority narrative that is so deeply embedded in the British psyche. And that's work for all of us, I think. 
So that is sadly all we've got time for this week, but I think it's a really great provocation to end on is how we start that conversation, how we start doing that work. Thank you so much, Ian Sanjay Patel, for being with me. It's been a really great conversation. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? What's your book again? (laughs) Thanks, Aisha. Thanks again for having me on. I'm not actually on social media, unfortunately, but the book is called we're here because you were there immigration and the end of empire and it's published by verso fantastic Uh, and once again lovely listeners do grab a copy because it's a really really educational read that is it for today's weekly economics podcast and for this series hashtag sob but we'll be back soon with more if you've enjoyed this episode as always please tell someone about it you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at nef on twitter The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.